Alright guys, so this is SSD, Sustainable Self-Development, a podcast for people who want to get ahead in fitness and in life without driving themselves crazy. So if you want to look up a year from now and think, damn, I came a long way, but you don't want to burn out in the process as you get there, you came to the right place. We'll get into today's episode in just a second, but just want to let you know that we have an awesome community on Facebook in the form of a group which you can join, where we discuss and debate things, drop ideas debate over which person to interview for the next podcast and all that good stuff. So go to Facebook, type in sustainable self-development or you can just check the show notes here and click the link there and you'll find the sustainable self-development Facebook group and you can join. Also not sure where you're listening to this right now, but this podcast is available on a variety of platforms, iTunes, SoundCloud, Podbeam and YouTube. You can find it on all of these platforms if you just type in sustainable self-development because luckily nobody is weird enough to name themselves in such a way except me so look me up on these places and follow the show by subscribing so that you don't miss future episodes and with that let's get into the show all right everybody thank you for tuning in today i am talking with mr pascal floor um, who is a member of the Revive Stronger bodybuilding uh, team, and I had his partner on, Steve Hall, and it will be a cool discussion uh, with Pascal, uh, you'll see exactly why, but as a kind of as a very brief intro, uh, I've listened to a lot of the kind of progress update type of episodes that they have done, and uh, Pascal was always very forthcoming and honest about his challenges and a lot of the hardships that he experienced. I mean, obviously, bodybuilding is, at the end of the day, a hobby for many of us, but still, um, I mean, and I'm not even a bodybuilder, but, you know, just fitness. And for even people who take it more seriously, bodybuilding is a is something that they do on the side for their own pleasure, but still, it puts people through a lot of hardships. And um, Pascal has uh, experienced in that regard some depths uh, that um, I, it will be interesting to ask him about. So after that way too long intro, uh, Pascal, welcome to uh, the show. And uh, my first question to you is, how would you evaluate? Like, do you think about like, damn, how did this past year of mine go? Like, uh, kind of, if you had to summarize it in like one sentence or one phrase, what would be the term that you would use to describe your past kind of bodybuilding year? Sure. Um, first and foremost, thanks for having me on, Abel. It's a pleasure to finally be here as well. Um, I'm listening to your podcast and you're doing a fantastic job. And so I'm really honored to be here now or that it's my turn to be on the show as well. Oh. Um, to describe my last year with one single word, it's really hard because I, I can actually think of a couple of words. but Feel free um, to use more than one. <laughs> yeah, what, one that comes to my mind is failure. Mm. and fraud um let me explain why so to give you a little bit of a background information of what has happened it all started in 2016 really when um, i prepared for a powerlifting competition towards the latter end of 2016 Uh, that was still the time where i was more into powerlifting than bodybuilding And I wanted to cut down into a lower weight class, the 75 kilogram weight class. I knew that I could. I was 87 kilograms at that point. And I wanted to cut down to 80 kilograms and then do a water cut. This is what I have done in the past for previous meets. And it worked or turned out quite well for me. 
Um, during that time, though, I started cutting and everything went well, but I always had a little bit of an issue in my in my left hip area, in my um, front part of the hip, so the anterior part of my hip. It turned out after a while that it was FAI. So FAI mm. is a bone deformity in the hip area that can cause severe damage there, especially when you're going into high ranges of motion such as heavy squats and then with a loaded weight on it you can actually cause some more damage in that specific area um, which i did obviously i mean i was training for powerlifting in a high intensity range still doing a lot of volume though so i was repeating that full range of motion over and over with with a loaded bar mm-hmm. and over time i just damaged that area to such a severe degree that i couldn't do the volume i needed to do to progress so during that time, I was, I think, three months away from the powerlifting meet. I needed to drop out of it because my left hip was constantly inflamed and I couldn't really train properly anymore and make the progression I needed to to actually be competitive. And I went to the doctor and we had a back and forth and decided to do a surgery in that area before I need to have an artificial hip because I was still 29 years old and my doctor said that it's quite young to have an artificial hip with that age, Mm. which makes sense because right now the technology is as advanced that when you're getting an artificial hip, it holds or lasts for 20 to 30 years. Most of the time, the people who do get an artificial hip are like 50 to 60 years old. And the only time they need to undergo surgery is once in their lifetime. But for me, at my age, it would have been most certainly like that I needed to undergo that specific surgery twice in my life, which could have a big impact on that entire structure and entire area, right? And my doctor simply wanted to avoid that and said that, If we want to avoid having an artificial hip right now, we need to do a surgery to prevent further damage and see if we can fix it somehow. So in December 2016, I then decided to do a hip surgery. It was at the beginning of December 2016. And um, I was in, in hospital for seven days. I couldn't really move at all. I needed to stay in bed for three days. Wasn't allowed to move at all. And... There, it all started kind of with my, with my mentality for 2017. Mm. I was, though, I need to add that as well. I was at 80 kilograms during that time because I continued cutting even though I didn't compete anymore because I knew that when I'm on crutches for additional eight weeks after the surgery, it's just a pain in the ass to weigh 87 kilograms instead of 80 kilograms. Mm-hmm. So I decided to still cut down, right? Um, so the entire time from June 2016 up to December uh, 2016, I was kind of already going through severe injury, but also still continuing to cut. So my, my body was in a stressed mode mm-hmm. and surgery isn't helpful as well in yeah. that regard. So I, I did have my surgery in December 2016 and my recovery time was about two months. But this... When, when I'm saying two months, I'm only referring to the time where I walked on crutches. After that, I still needed to recover, of course. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't squat, I think, for seven months after that. Right. Then it was the first time I, I started to squat with an empty bar on my back. And that was the first time I got back into the groove. But um, 
So I finally laid off the crutches in February 2018 and started my contest prep for that year in, two, in March 2018. So a couple of days actually after I laid off the crutches, which was a bad decision to be really honest. Yeah. And during that time frame was the only time where I was eating at maintenance. So I had kind of a diet break for two months, but I was still recovering from a severe injury from a surgery, yeah. which is an, yeah, I mean, a, a big disruption to the entire system. Yeah. So you can't really talk about a break from a system, a break from stressors as well, right? Yeah. But I decided, or I thought, that it's a good idea to, to start a contest prep. And my sleep was a mess as well. Mm. So you can all imagine now that you have kind of more information that the contest prep was not going as intended. It didn't, um, didn't start at the right spot, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, totally. I didn't set myself up for, for success. I took a lot away from it, though, because I, I learned how important it is to give yourself the break and give yourself the time for a proper contest prep in it for itself. So I'm always saying to my people that the off season is there for a successful contest prep. You're setting yourself up for success. And if your off season is go isn't going as planned, and if you have already there some issues with sleep, with stress management, you can't expect it to get better during a contest prep. Yeah. But uh, I only learned it in, in, when, when I went through it myself. Right. And yeah, so the first weeks went kind of as planned. I lost weight, but I quickly stalled out in my weight loss. And I needed to increase my step numbers on a day-to-day -day basis. So my need levels, my cardio needed to increase significantly. I couldn't push it as hard in the gym simply because I still needed to recover uh, with my hip. And uh, I was already on pretty low calories at that time, right? Yeah. But I, I, I was too stubborn. I continued to push. I continued to push up until June 2017, where I then finally needed to pull the plug because my hip got so inflamed by all the movement I needed to do on a day-to-day -day basis. So I was at 20,000 steps per day, in addition to nearly all or everyday cardio, oh. which was simply too much for my hip to recover from. Yeah. And with that in mind that I was still recovering, still from the surgery, because my doctor said that it can take up to a year after such a surgery for the hip to recover from such a uh, intense um, surgery in and of itself. Yeah. So I needed to pull the plug, did that, and it. <laughs> I didn't want to do that, but all odds were against me. And there were. I, I did pull the plug too late also, I must admit that, because I was simply too stubborn. I thought, now I can do that, or my willpower is high, um, I can't pull out because I'm, I'm putting myself out there. I said to all the people around me that I'm going to compete and I didn't want to become a failure in their eyes and I didn't want to be a fraud in their eyes because I'm an online coach myself and I want to, to be a role model, right? Yeah. But um, when I finally needed to pull the plug, um, I got into a really deep hole mentally. Yeah, and basically it was just like I felt really like a failure and a fraud. And 
that continued for, I think, like two or three or four months, especially because I saw many of my friends competing that year as well. And I followed their journey meticulously on, on Instagram, on the social medias, and it didn't help at all, right? Yeah. When you want to do, to, to do the same shows as they did, and you realize that you needed to pull the plug and they are successful in your eyes and you aren't. Um, yeah, and yeah that, that just had a massive impact on, on myself and my well-being and that continued for a long time. But I mean, I rambled for a long time now. I don't know <laughs> if, you, if you want to interfere here or yeah, um, had something to add. Yeah, so um, uh, you, you stepped at, at an important uh, spot, like I think what happened afterwards and what you mentioned at the end about the impact of um, uh, the impact of you know what viewing others that you're looking up to what that can have on have on your mind is an important one and I think we should dig into that for sure but first kind of the um, uh, you kind of fast forward it to the point where you pull the plug but I mean I I listened to your podcasts leading up to that point uh, doing your progress updates and discussing your challenges and it was very clear that. Uh, there was Steve who pretty much like after some point, it was not even that much to say about his pro progress because it was like, yeah, everything is going smoothly. Weight, yeah. weight is being lost. I'm getting leaner. Um, he was also pretty damn lean to begin with. Um, and it was clear that uh, you've had to overcome a lot of challenges. I, I remember discussing how you were trying to improve your sleep. You were struggling with a lot of water retention. And I'm wondering that as you were approaching the point where it was becoming more and more inevitable that you had to pull the plug eventually. I'm sure that leading up to that point, there was a lot of internal battle when you were trying to, you kind of knew at deep down that probably that would be the right decision, but at the same time, you wanted it so badly. Probably you also didn't want to, I would assume you didn't want to lose all the pro progress that you made up until that point and kind of let all the sacrifices that you had made to just go to shit. And, you know, did I made all those sacrifices? Did I struggle through even post-surgery? I was pushing hard. Was that all for nothing if I now pulled the plug? So... Can you just outline kind of how that internal, those internal dialogues went and how you experienced that whole kind of process in, internally? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned one thing that was, I think, really important, and that is the external motivators to some extent, because they can be positive motivators, but they can also be negative for you. And for me, I always had Steve around me. I could see his progress and it was for him. He did set himself up for a really successful contest prep because he prepared himself for that over the previous years even, yeah. right? And he only had to lose 10 pounds. Yeah. And he could do a diet break in between. He could eat his way into the shows and stuff like that. So it was really successful for him. And for me, it was just like I, I saw his contest strap and then others around me as well competed at the UK DFBA, which I also wanted to do. Also someone like Luke Johnson from Shredded by Science, for example, mm -hmm. who isn't a bodybuilder. He says, he says it himself. He only did it as a challenge for himself to prove something. Yeah. And towards the latter end of his bodybuilding uh, season, he competed. Actually, he made it to the stage. And he said it was a smooth ride for him as well. And it was way too easy. Yeah. Right? And for me, it's just like a, a really true punch in my face to then hear something like that where someone who's not really passionate about it, who's not really want to be a bodybuilder, gets into a diet and 
is successful because he makes it to stage. And for me, it was all I wanted in that situation. And every single day, I knew that I need to pull the plug, but I was way too stubborn. And it all started, I, I got up in the uh, early in the morning and there was a constant conflict going on inside of me because I knew that when I put my coaching hat on, looking at my progress from an external perspective, so quite objectively, I knew that I had to pull the plug. I knew that because this is something I would have done with all of my clients. If I had kind of seen that kind of progress and also mental struggle and stuff like that, I would have pulled the plug for them and said, okay, that's simply not worth it. Um, suffering through it, putting your body under such severe pressure, um, being sleep deprived, being overly stressed all the time. I was still going to school as well, right? Yeah. Um, Training is going like shit. Your hip is still recovering from a surgery. Um, I would have pulled the plug for all of my clients. And thus, I also knew for myself that this is the right decision to do. But I was postponing that decision for, I think, like one month even. Because every single day, I thought like, nah, come on. Eh? You can do it. You have the willpower. You have the passion to to pull through. And I think that the mentality of the social media of always go hard or go home. Uh, if if you can't succeed, then you don't want it hard enough and stuff like that. That yeah. that mentality, right? That Nike mindset, uh, just do it, right? Was sitting so much inside of me, but was definitely not beneficial at all. Yeah, because it did more damage than good in that situation which then lasted on for a longer period of time afterwards than if i had made the decision early on being mature about it and realizing that the stage will always be there mm -hmm. and you can always die it down if, if you want to but i i, I dr i've driven myself so much against the wall it was like sitting in a car right or driving against a wall crashing your car but it's still still able to drive a little bit right then reversing and drive against the wall another time yeah. and that repeating that process like over and over and over again up until the point where you're just unconscious and need to to get into the hospital right yeah. this is how i see that process going on instead of saying okay i crashed against the wall okay let's call let's call the ambulance let's call the police and let's let them deal with the situation right um yeah and thus, it was a constant conflict inside of me. And I had several different discussions also with Steve. And he said it as well, like, Pascal, really consider what you're doing right now. But yeah. sometimes you, you just have to go through yourself to actually learn from it. You have to make the mistakes for yourself to realize that it wasn't worth the hassle or the, the struggle and stuff like that. Yeah. And actually, it's funny, you mentioned uh, Luke Johnson, and I think he's a bit of an extreme case. Like, um, I, I think the way he spoke about his contest prep, uh, I've heard him speaking about how the process went for him as well. And I think most people will not, hem not have it as easy as, as he is. Probably he has some unique advantages there, probably also in terms of mindset, but maybe also kind of genetically, maybe his appetite is, is just, just genetically lower. I don't want to discredit his, his good efforts and his good mentality by any means. It's just something to note. But I remember listening to a, a podcast where uh, he was on there with the two of you guys. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the weeks prior, I remember hearing your 
you know, the, the challenges that you face, what all of the things that you just talked about here. And um, I remember him being on and he just did his usual rant of like, oh, people bitch so much about contest prep. It's really not that hard. You know, people are starving in Africa. We are doing it for our own pleasure, all those things. And I was just remember thinking like, what must you know Pascal think about all of this? You know, he's like going through all of those things that Luke is is talking about. There's <laughs> not really real issues. And again, I don't want to discredit his good. I think that's a good mentality to have. Um, but at the same time, those moments must have been pretty tough on you, I would imagine. Yeah, but I, I think that when it comes to my personality, it's not that I give so much about what others are doing. It's more so I'm, I'm really focused on my own progress and my own process. So in that situation, when he mentions things like these, it's not really that hard. And I do love Luke. I know that mm-hmm. a lot of people have, have some issue with the way he talks um, because he is straightforward and stuff like that. And I can see that a couple of people might dislike his way simply he is but uh, i really do love and give him credits for what he's pulled off there and it wasn't really the the issue what he said or has done but more so the symbol of it right that there was one individual there who doesn't live and breathe for the sport but then shows up dies down and competes at a power, uh, at a bodybuilding uh, competition and all i wanted to do in that situation was to do exactly that right yeah. and i think that just the symbol of it was more so what was an issue for me. And also because we wanted to compete at the same show together with Steve as well. And I think AJ was planned to do the same show as well, but he um, he qualified for the Worlds before that already. So he didn't need to do that show. All these were motivators for me to, to keep going, to keep grinding, right? Because it was just like we were at a conference of... Shredded by Science as well, um, who had Mike Zoros and Eric Helms in London. Mm-hmm. And it was in, in June, I think, beginning of June. And I saw Luke there. I saw um, AJ there as well. And we all said, like, yeah, come on, let's pull it up onto the competition. We can do it, right? And then we stay up on the, on the stage and uh, slap each other's spots and stuff like that, <laughs> right? Making a little bit fun of it. And it was a kick in my butt to, to keep going, but... Yeah, physiologically, yeah. my body just shut down at some point, and um, I think that when when this time comes, it's already way too late. It's like when you're in a training setting, you don't want to deload when you already feel like super burned out. Right? Yeah. You want to deload as a preventive measure so that you can push it further and further. And the same applies to something like a diet break, for example. You don't want to have a diet break when you necessarily need to take a diet break, but as a preventive measure so that you can further push it afterwards. And um, yeah, my body just shut down at some point and I couldn't really walk because my hip was so inflamed. Um, And yeah, Yeah. when I couldn't really do the steps I needed to do anymore, (laughs) when I couldn't really do the cardio anymore and I couldn't train my lower body anymore, it was just like, okay, shit. What what am I supposed to do now? Just fast the entire day? (laughs) Not eating anything at all anymore? And that was just the sign for me to then pull the plug. And I mean, I had a couple of discussions about it with uh, certain individuals and everyone said like pascal you should have pulled the plug way earlier and there will always be a next show yeah yeah yeah. they they are so true i mean when it comes to bodybuilding especially here in europe or especially in the u.s you have shows like all the time Mm -hmm. and it doesn't really make a huge difference whether you compete today or in three months or in six months 
doesn't really make that much of a difference. And when now isn't the time because things in life are going on and life is always happening, right? You can't really predict when someone passes away in your family or um, there's a stressful time or you, you are even losing your job at work or something like that. Can't really predict that most of the time, right? Yeah. And um, do you then really want to pull through it? I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's it's almost like um, it's almost like when it, it reminds me when I was preparing for exams in college. Like uh, <laughs> I knew for a long time that I had to uh, I had to start preparing for the exam after kind of postponing it for a while. And you know, like classic, <laughs> yeah. And once I finally put my ass in the chair and started preparing, I was like, okay, this I don't like doing this, but I knew for a long time that I had to do it and. While I hate the actual act itself, I know that I'm doing the right thing. And I, I guess something like that happened in your case with the contest prep. And uh, the, the next thing I want to ask you about is how was the, 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 you know, like the few days afterwards? Uh, I, I remember you mentioning that you laid out your entire year and then unexpectedly you, you experienced some pretty big blues after, you know, pulling the plug. So how, how was yeah. that? I mean, um, I needed to refocus, have another goal in mind. And thus, I immediately sat down to create a, a annual plan or the plans for when I want to compete the next time, right? So I, I structured everything, laid everything out. Like it will always change along the way, but having some kind of a red line in front of you yeah. was really important, at least for me, especially in that situation where that big goal that was in front of you, like for the last couple of weeks and month is now gone. Yeah. Thus, I needed to have another goal in mind. That's where I came up with that annual plan. And now my plan is that I'm doing an off-season, extended off-season in 2018 and going into 2019 where I'm then doing a contest prep and trying to compete at the end of 2019. But once again, things can always change along the way and I'm more flexible now in that regard. But the first 10 weeks went actually pretty well. I was mentally, I was a little bit struggling mm -hmm. in regards to... Um, now accepting to eat a little bit more once again yeah, and rescheduling my daily habits to actually be able also to, to eat that much more because you know, Abel, when you are cutting after a while, you simply get used to enjoying that structure, these habits, that routine you have on a day-to-day -day basis. Enjoy meals like, let's just say, chicken broccoli rice which i didn't have but uh, let's just say for the sake of easiness here yeah. this is your structure and after a while you really do enjoy that structure mm -hmm. and i needed to switch my mindset into a more flexible approach once again and also accepting to eat more to gain yeah. and um because I also knew that I will be struggling a little bit to gain weight, I decided to train twice daily. Also because mm -hmm. I had summer holidays from school, so I had the time available and I wanted to make the most out of that time, out of that post-contest prep window. Yeah. Thus, I went into the gym twice daily where my volume was just evenly spread across the days. It wasn't like that I'm, I was doing so much more volume or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Just wanted to use more time in the gym and also um, be able to, to push a little bit more in each and every single session because sometimes the training sessions can get a little bit long 
and the accessory movements such as let's just say bicep curls suffer a little bit because you're already a little bit fatigued yeah so uh, with all that in mind the first 10 weeks so the first two mesocycles went pretty well i was still struggling a little bit in my mindset but it was nothing severe though but when i needed to actually fall back into only training once per day and go back to school I don't know. I was struggling big time to actually get back into that routine to, and I don't know really why. Still, I don't know why I was struggling that much. And that continued, I would say, up until January or, or fe- beginning of February, though. Yeah. Uh, so for a long, 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 long time. And I was actually also having big issues with controlling my hunger and um, keeping the palatable foods away, which I've never experienced in my life before. Mm-hmm. Um, to give the listeners a little bit of a background story of my nutritional history. So when I was at the age of 14, I was overly obese as a small child, right? I was then going to the doctors and we diagnosed that I have a high blood sugar levels. And he then said that if I don't take control over my nutrition, I will become a diabetic at some point. Mm-hmm. I was always an active child, but not active enough to <laughs> to make up for all the bad uh, quote-unquote bad calories i was eating <laughs> i was eating way too much calories and always eating like just processed and highly palatable foods mm-hmm. so i changed my nutrition and everything went well i was losing 30 kilograms so just to keep things in perspective i was 160 tall i was weighing 90 kilograms as a 14 year old child Oh, chunky kid <laughs> yeah really really chubby eh? like a like a small sweet kitty yeah uh, but yeah <laughs> <laughs> super round and fluffy um but yeah so um ever since then i needed to take care of my nutrition sure it wasn't to the extent i'm having control over right now i wasn't counting macros or anything like that but i needed to build an awareness of what is quote-unquote good food and what is quote-unquote bad food or what I can eat and stuff like that. And there it started where I start, kind of started with counting uh, counting calories, not macros necessarily, but only total calories, right? To keep things yeah. at bay. And the first time I lost control was after after the contest prep, mm-hmm. after the 10 weeks of where my mesocycles went well. It was the first time after 16 years of taking care of my nutrition that I lost control over over my first and foremost willpower, but also the control over all when it comes to nutrition. In the day, back in the days, it was always like, okay, I have my uh, total calories here, and even though I'm hungry, I'm not going above that. Uh-huh. And it was the first time that I went above it because I was eating palatable foods, and I could then control myself. I and I read about it of course, and I've seen it with a couple of clients of mine who were coming from a binging background. I experienced it also with clients firsthand that they were binging and we took care of it. So I had some strategies at hand to take care of that. But when it came to myself, I couldn't really explain where it comes from because I always thought that I have the willpower, I have the control, I have the knowledge to actually, yeah, that not let this happen but it happened and it happened frequently and i always felt super guilty afterwards right and this this was the time where i fell into a deep deep like really deep hole because Mm. the failure and feeling like a fraud from the not 
competing at the bodybuilding um, competition was still in my head and was still present for me. And now I'm also losing control over my nutrition. It was just a little bit too much and everything went downhill from there on. And I need all I needed to do over the past like, yeah, from, from October up to February was to try to get back on track. Like five months time. And it was just such a struggle actually. Mm. Yeah, it's, you know, like as you're speaking about this, to me, it's it's actually not at all that surprising that you found yourself in in this in this mental uh, kind of you know situation because I mean essentially it seems like the the year prior to that you spent that entire period in a state of extremes you know doing really extreme measures and pushing yeah. against really severe barriers you know physically and mentally in the hopes of achieving something relatively short-term goal. Like you, you've done things post-surgery, you've done things during high levels of stress that you know, 99% of people wouldn't have done, but you did it because you had this goal in mind that, okay, I'm, I'm working for something that is meaningful to me that I want to achieve. And now all of a sudden you had to switch your mindset over to doing something much more moderate in the hopes of achieving something much more longer term. And you know, like, if we were robots and we could just switch our mindset with, you know, clicks of switches, then we could just make these radical switches in terms of mindset. But I mean, that's, we are not rational beings. We are, we are very much driven, driven by emotions and impulses. So it's kind of, it's, it's only normal. And, um, it's, it's good that you, good that you have the ability to self-reflect on it and that you could manage this after some point but you know to me listening to this it's it's not at all shocking that this happened to you no absolutely and i would like to add something to that because um it's like you said i mean i was dieting effectively since june 2016 oh yeah the the small break from the surgery where i was eating at maintenance that wasn't really a break as we already mentioned because the body was still in a highly stressed state and was still recovering and for the body Stress is stress is stress. It doesn't really decide for whether you're watching a Netflix show, whether you are undergoing a surgery, or that it comes from a caloric deficit. Sure, these are different stresses, but the body still responds in the same kind of manner on a stress. Um, And thus, it's not really surprising at all, because effectively, I was in a deficit for over a year. And I had once a consultation with Brother Rick Chavez. So Brother mm-hmm. Rick Chavez, for the people who don't know who he is, uh, he is consulting with Mike Isvertel. And I think he is kind of the coach of him, but <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. I think so. But he's a biologist um, and he's also working with a lot of um, enhanced athletes. I'm natural myself, but... Uh, during the entire time, my hormone panel was also really messed up. And this is where I consulted with him. And during that time, I needed to share and lay everything open in front of him as well in terms of my nutritional intake and stuff like that. And he was basically saying or predicting what is going to happen. And it's funny that I'm actually, it's the first time I really think about it now that I'm telling you that, Hmm. that he was predicting what is going to happen because he said that when you are in a deprived state for such a long period of time, you can expect that the body will take like half the time or perhaps the same amount of time to actually recover from that. Yeah. And he basically said that it could potentially be that you, after that contest prep, if you are able to pull it, uh, pull th- or push through, that you need to recover like for one or two years to actually feel like normal again. 
Yeah, I mean, I, it, I, I didn't really listen to him because it was just sounded a little bit insane to me. But now that I look back, I mean, there is some some truth to it. I mean, I I I don't know. I'm not entirely sure if I still am fully recovered by now because I mean, I still struggled big time up until February with my hunger levels and with controlling everything and stuff like that. And I think sometimes right now I started a cut two and a half weeks ago, more of a conservative cut this time, but I'm still experiencing sometimes like really severe hunger signals right now already, which shouldn't really happen um, at my deficit in which I'm at right now. And perhaps there is definitely some truth to it. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I, I would be, you know, like, I don't want to play the, you know, biologists, you know, high top of the food chain biologist here, but I would be surprised if it actually took like two years to normalize things. But I, I can definitely attest to, you know, I, I was very transparent about this on the podcast that, you know, out of the whatever, five, six years that I've been on the fitness journey so far, I spent a good 70% of it in a deficit, I would say. And um, definitely, like, I've been in a, in a gaining phase for the past eight, nine months, I'm doing a cut right now as well. And only like, I mean, the good second half of that gaining phase that I have these moments, which other people talk about of, damn, like, I don't want to eat more. Like, I'm just mm-hmm. not, ex- I just like, okay, I need to get my meal in because I didn't have my, you know, I, I was kind of under eating today, but I, I just really don't feel like eating. My body kind of is telling me to eat less. Um, I only had that after after a long time. I'm still um, on kind of on some outlier days, those old behaviors still kick in, you know, just the reliance on high volume foods. Uh, Maybe a good part of it is just habits, but probably there there are are some physiological kind of uh, adaptations that need to be kind of quote unquote reversed. Uh, It's hard to tell. These these kinds of things are really nuanced. But in that regard, I also think that when you have experienced something like that, or when you are a little bit prone to overeating, when you perhaps have been a chubby kid or something like that. You've never really built that intuitive eating approach, which I've never learned, by the way. Um, it was always back in the days when I was a young kid, my uh, parents always said that I have to finish the plate. Nah. Even though when I wasn't hungry or anything like that, right? And that just ingrains for the kids not to listen to their body, but to finish the plate, right? And I think that it's really the responsibility of the parents to let the kids eat intuitively to some extent, right? Yeah. That they that they learn to listen to their bodies. Because right now, it's just when I'm in a gaining phase and I don't control my calories and I don't watch my calories, I am easily overeating all the time, mm. all the time. And it doesn't matter whether I'm, I'm gaining since like six months already or whether I'm, I'm in a gaining phase since two years. I always need to actually uh, take care of that and... I think some people simply need to accept the fact that intuitive eating might never work for them. Is this something, though, uh, I'm just asking, because like uh, people who listen to my podcast a lot know that I, I, I talked a lot about kind of the intuitive eating um, style, which, which I'm doing. Actually, I've been doing that for almost a year at this point, and it worked out greatly for me. Like it actually, if anything, it helped greatly with uh, overeating related mm-hmm. issues and, and hunger issues. Is this something that uh, you kind of have as a potential future avenue that you might want to learn later on? Um, yeah. It would be awesome to learn that. But it's funny because it's not that long time ago that Steve and I have participated at the Mag Nutrition 
conference with Alan Aragorn, I think it was in November or December last year, where Alan was talking about intuitive eating. And I was then questioning whether it is even possible for people like us who are so aware of the macronutrient content of certain foods that true intuitive eating is actually possible. Because no matter what I'm eating, I always know somehow the value and content of the macros of these specific foods. Unless I'm in a country where I really don't have any clue about what I'm eating. But uh, other than that... And this is a question I have for you, maybe, because you, you, you um, try to learn it or to try to apply it for yourself. Do you actually think with that in the back of your mind, is it really or are you truly able to intuitively eat when you have a prolonged period of experience with macro tracking? Yeah, so yeah, that, that's a great question. And um, I, I said this many times that I'm only like intuitive eating if you were to think of intuitive eating as something that you're just completely waking up every day with a blank slate and it's like hmm what does my body tell you that I should eat in that sense it's of course very far from intuitive it's not intuitive in that sense at all I just use the it's it's more I would use the term ad libitum eating Mm -hmm. or or auto-regulated eating so basically it's very much um, using the habits and the nutritional knowledge that I gathered over years of, you know, being conscious and being and, and tracking my food, using those good habits and behaviors and letting hunger and satiety signals override all of that. So, yes, I am very much conscious of protein intake. Um, and even, you know, like if anything, if you're familiar with your body and what kind of calorie ranges it responds best to, then if anything, from changes in your body weight, you can tell more or less what your calorie intake is. Oh. I mean, it's it's impossible not to know it. I wouldn't know exactly. I mean, I, I could tell you probably a, a ballpark range of where my calories could be, but that's simply because I'm familiar with the energy density of foods. So it's basically my eating behavior is selecting foods that I know from experience will allow me to eat to satiety and not overeat. I know my, not, I know very well my culprit foods. I know which foods satiate me. And um, I'm running a loose track um, of my protein intake. So I'm aware roughly where my protein intake falls. And I cannot let the rest of it, so mainly carb intake, I let that to auto-regulate based on hunger because my carb intake, for example, is almost entirely coming from foods that I know from experience satiate me, so fruits, veggies, Mm. that kind of stuff. So, yeah. That that sounds like really as an attainable goal for many people, I think. And I would love to get there at some point, but I also think that it takes or requires a lot of work and awareness from your end. yeah, it's a learning when, process. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I mean, it's the same when it comes to macro tracking, right? It takes skills as well. And you can't really go out and expect from someone who's never tracked macros to then be able to have it mastered from one day to the next. And I think that the same applies to learning to only eat by your hunger signals. And I mean, I, w- I would love to actually be able to pull that one off. And I could imagine that it might be easier if you have someone at your side. Like I'm speaking of a, a partner. So yeah. um, in my case, it would be a girlfriend. Um, but I, I don't have a girlfriend right now. But I think that it would make things so much easier because especially when they aren't into fitness and they don't care about macros or something like that, then you rather want to enjoy the time you have together and thus not stressing about the macros. And potentially that might 
relax you a little bit more as well and help you with really listening to your body and not eating out of habit or eating because oh it's it's 12 a.m uh, or no 12 p.m <laughs> yeah um and now i need to eat something because that's my time where i only have my my yeah lunch right because i think that when it comes to that aspect as well right now i'm more so trimmed on when i'm eating Oh, yeah. This can also have something to do with ghrelin, for example, which regulates when your hunger signals kicks in. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, it would it would be definitely an attainable goal for myself to get there, especially because I never learned to intuitively eat. And when it comes to the um, intuitive eating approach and the macro tracking and estimating kind of things, what you've been saying as well. In the end, I think that, yes, you could, you could actually say that you're intuitively eating because there are so many studies showing how poor people are at estimating their macros or the, the calorie content of foods. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there are so many studies and it's always so funny how, how poor people are at estimating that, even nutritionists and stuff like that. So I think that I wouldn't be an exception for that rule but when well, you are I, sorry, yeah, sorry, sorry sorry to interrupt but i would actually challenge you on that i i do think you would be an exception to that because i mean i wouldn't be surprised that you after so many you know years of tracking if you were to eat just quote unquote intuitively maybe paying attention to your protein intake i don't know maybe if you're currently maintaining on i don't know 2700 calories i wouldn't be surprised if at the end of it if you backtracked how much you ate intuitively it would come out at like 2750 or something oh no no no, no. absolutely and this is this was something i wanted to add on top of that that i think that when you were tracking your macros for 10 15 years or something and then you fall back onto the foods you've always been eating in the past then i think that estimating those foods or just eyeballing them you can be quite accurate when it comes to that but when it then comes to like i don't know you're visiting <laughs> i don't know timbuktu yeah? and <laughs> on timbuktu you have some kind of meal you've never seen in your life before how should you then actually estimate that or oh, yeah. stuff like that right i mean you are i think you can be quite good at estimating your foods that you have been tracked in the past quite frequently and quite often but when it then comes to other foods in your life which you haven't or when you are eating out and there's kind of these hidden calories, like a lot of added fats or anything like that, then it can be quite challenging, of course. But I think yeah. that in that regard, it is freeing not to track macros and then more so enjoy the, the event and the time you have. Because I think that when you eat out with someone or you go to, out traveling, most of the time you want to enjoy the moment and not thinking about the macros. And I would love to get to that point where I'm a little bit more flexible about that approach, where I can swing that pendulum of flexibility and rigidity a little bit more from one end to the next. Yeah, no, that's I, I like that idea, and I think it's you said it very well, and I. And we're kind of coming up on time. I'm wondering, do you have a few more minutes? I don't know how pressed you are on time. Yeah, sure thing. I have minutes here. Oh, cool. So I wanted to ask you about um, now you've been, uh, you know, you pulled a plug. I believe that was like sometime in August or something. Uh, yeah, it was in, in mid-June. Yeah, so uh, you've been then gaining for, for a good while. You did some uh, mini cuts uh, here and there. Maybe you can touch on that, uh, what, what you think of those mini cuts in retrospect, uh, how appropriate they were or how... Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but also, like, I'm wondering, like, how was the... How, was, how did it feel like gaining, like, you know, putting on body fat? How did that all play out with you psychologically? 
at first it was more challenging than towards the latter end because the latter end I had to deal with other other issues such as overeating and it wasn't really the problem anymore mm. about um, the body fat changes or something or gaining too quickly because I obviously gained too quickly in that <laughs> regard but it was more so um, getting some structure back and, and controlling myself because if I'm not able to control myself and have structure, of course, I'm constantly overeating, right? And then yeah. I'm, I'm, I don't need to think about gaining too quickly because obviously I'm eating way too much. So the next step would be to get some structure and, and control back to then gain at an appropriate rate or actually stay at maintenance and stuff like that. And I think that perhaps it wasn't the best idea to go straight into a gaining phase after I pulled the plug. Mm. I think that a prolonged maintenance phase would have done me so good, especially when keeping in mind that I was in a deficit for such a long time and now jumping into the other extreme again wasn't really beneficial at all, right? Making so much food available for the system when it was in such a deprived stage for a long period of time wasn't really the best thing to do. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, at, at some point then I wanted, of course, to do some mini cuts because I felt a little bit fluffy and I thought that I was always good when it comes to cutting and having then the structure. And I see it with a lot of people, actually, that they have more control over the diet when they are in a diet, dieting phase, so in a cutting phase, Absolutely. than um, when they are in a gaining phase. Oh, yeah, 100%. And I was the same. I, I felt like, okay, when I'm now, I, I then thought that throwing in a mini cut now would get me on track, be a little bit more focused, have some structure back and be committed again to my nutritional strategy and plan, right? Actually sticking to my macros and not going overboard or stuff like that, right? Having that structure back, which I had in my contest prep. I then started to do a mini cut and... <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, surprise, surprise. You could expect what what happened because I was yeah, kind of cutting the calories too drastically, depriving my body from nutrients and calories, which it was now used to get. But it was still at a point where I was quite lean and the body was immediately giving me the negative responses of not feeling well, not wanting to be in a caloric deficit. And their hunger levels were just <laughs> significantly <laughs> higher than I ever experienced during my contest prep. Damn. Right. And it just always ended up with me overeating and trying to fix that the next day. Right. Oh, yeah. And that, that vicious cycle I'm always talking about with my clients. And I always say, okay, when you're overeating, forget about it. Just get back on track. And that's absolutely fine. And if that happens on a regular basis, we need to reevaluate our strategy and make some adjustments so that you can actually stick to your plan, right? Yeah. But all in all, the mini cut was simply not the greatest idea. And that was the course that always led me to overeat and always fall off the wagon. But I that happened so often then that I was actually always ending up being in a caloric surplus in the end. But I was still depriving my body from, um, from nutrients and from proper nutrition to recover from the contest prep and from being in a prolonged deficit that it never really recovered. Yeah. But still, I was in a surplus. Right. And, um, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, um, so I, I would be wondering, like... Um, 
you mentioned uh, in the beginning that uh, kind of being a f- like failure and fraud, those are the words that come to mind. I mean, that's that's a really harsh way to put it. Like, I, I don't think I don't think that's necessarily reasonable. Um, I mean, you you faced a lot of challenges, and um, first of all, I would be wondering, like, if you look at look back at your past year, like, um, if you could jump into a time machine and, like, you know, just really quick, like, what 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 are the big things that you, that you would do differently? Um, like, if someone was in your situation now, uh, maybe. I don't know, 2016, June, let's say, wind back there. What would you tell that person? What what should they do? I mean, uh, 2016, I would say, okay, cut down up until the surgery. That was all, all fine and well, mm-hmm. right? Because you don't want to be a fat fuck while walking on crutches. It was already so, so hard to walk on crutches mm. with 80 kilograms and then through snow because it was the winter time uh, that I don't want to experience that with 10 kilograms more or anything like that. Yeah. So this is definitely something I, I would do again and also go, doing this surgery. But everything that followed... I would probably do different. I wouldn't do the contest prep, not even considering it after a such a severe um, uh, surgery. It's just like my entire system was recovering for a couple of months and I didn't really give my body the required time to actually recover, right? And yeah. it was not really a surprise that my hip flared up at some point and got so inflamed because, yes, it was still kind of injured, right? Yeah. And my sleep was a mess. I was I was sleep massively sleep-deprived for like two months. And then leading into a contest prep, what do I expect? That it gets better throughout the contest prep? <laughs> Obviously not, right? Yeah. And um, so I think that the biggest lesson I learned is prepare yourself for a contest prep and Put yourself in a situation and make sure to be in a situation where you actually have the capacity to do something like that. Because contest prep isn't really easy. Um, because yeah. other things play a role as well. External factors, especially things that happen in your life. When your sleep is fucked, I mean, that's that's a major impactor on your success throughout the contest prep. When you're already starting for contest prep that last six months and your sleep is already messed up, for the next six months, not sleeping properly, that, that, that takes a toll on your system. Yeah. And yeah, I think that ever since then, I learned how important the off-season is and that I always tell my clients that the off-season is where you set yourself up for a proper contest prep. And we now have to take care of fixing your sleep, fixing some of the stresses in your life, um, having proper fatigue management, building some habits already so that when the time comes for the contest prep to start, that we only need to switch that knob to then be in the mode of contest prep. Yeah. But not really big things change along the way or that it's a drastic change going into a contest prep. So, yeah, the big takeaways is simply that contest prep, you want to only start a contest prep when you have the capacity for it and prepare yourself for for that. And also make sure that you are in a situation um, that you can pull something like that off and be absolutely honest with yourself. Because I think that I wasn't. I thought that, yeah, that that might turn out well because... <laughs> somehow right yeah it will but, be fine um, yeah. <laughs> yeah totally but it didn't and i think that 
it was kind of a predicted scenario how it turned out. Yeah, well, um, and, I, and I guess then, then finally, well, thank you for sharing that, first of all. And, and finally, um, when looking at your plans for the upcoming year, um, do you feel good about those? Like, um, or do you have a clear conscience in terms of like, is any, everything that you laid out seem reasonable? And uh, are you excited about the upcoming period? I mean, I guess you are. But um, maybe a better question would be, what do you plan uh, for the upcoming period for yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm super pumped already. Um, when I really think about that next year or the next season, uh, I do enjoy my training right now. I have a couple of nagging injuries that always flare up. There's something on my back that needs to be fixed before I start the next contest prep because it's one particular area that always flares up and that keeps me from from um, proper lifting. Mm-hmm. I, I always need then to take a break from proper back training. And if that continues into the contest prep, that would just be counter counterproductive for my progress because mm-hmm. throughout a contest prep, all you want to do is actually try your best to preserve as much muscle mass as possible while losing the appropriate amount of fat to present what you've worked for, right? And if you can't ensure that because of an injury and you are suffering uh, from muscle loss throughout that process, is it really worth it when you can't bring the best package of yourself? That's always a valid question you need to ask yourself. And for me, it's just like, Things need to be in the right position in terms of health, well-being, and this is something I need to take care of now. And it seems perhaps a little bit exaggerated from for some people because, I mean, it's April 2018 and he wants to step on stage in September 2019 and he already talks about putting himself into the right situation. But, I mean, I can already work on fixing my sleep, um, working on a really solid sleep routine actually um, fixing some habits that or some issues I have right now really also experimenting with uh, certain foods training routines that work when I'm cutting when I'm a little bit fatigued and stuff like that right and um, these are the plans like taking the off season not only to improve okay it is a way of improvement because Um, you can experiment and make use of that time to see what is actually working for you so that I can make use of it when the time comes and it's necessary to make use of it, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, no, that's very well said. And I mean, the long-term planning, uh, especially when you're a bodybuilder and you need to put yourself through something so extreme, I think it's it's very much, I think, the way it should be in many regards to plan uh, ahead. And uh, especially, you know, when we are talking about the German precision here, I mean, that's you know only to be expected. <laughs> Just kidding. Absolutely, no. engineer. <laughs> yeah, I, I would love. So, I, I will never become a pro or one of the big guys, right? But I always imagined, like, if I ever were some of these IFBB big guys with the nicknames, right? I would love to be the engineer. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. The engineer, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> cool. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for sharing everything that you shared here. Uh, I think it will be you, you know, a lot of good lessons that can be taken away uh, from your story and the challenges you faced, and also what you overcame. And um, you know, I I wish you a much more um, productive, not just you know, rich in lessons, but also rich in you know tangible uh, success in in the fronts of bodybuilding, you know, and improving, you know, overcoming all, all your nagging injuries. And uh, hopefully the next time I, I interview you, we can reflect on some amazing successes. So let's hope for that. 
And also uh, keep up the great work with um, Steve on Revive Stronger. Oh, by the way, on that note, um, a revelation I had about Steve, which I would like to share with the audience. Um, I just realized the other day that Steve looks like the young George Michael. Does he? Yeah. I need to check that, but it yeah. could potentially be, yeah. Check out the video clip from Wham called I'm Your Man. That's the name of the song. <laughs> and there, George Michael looks like Steve, I swear. Can, can, could you put that into the description of YouTube? Yeah, so yeah. That people can actually check that out as well. <laughs> Absolutely. That will be the title of the episode. Like, <laughs> yes, please. Like, like, Pascal Flores thoughts on George Michael looking like Steve Hall. Right? <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> All right, cool, man. Uh, what kind of resources would you like people to check out? And uh, where can people find out more about what you do? Yeah, sure thing. I mean, uh, it's always good to find us on revivestronger.com, so our website. If you want to participate with the community of us, we've built an amazing community over on Facebook, on, on our Facebook group, revivestronger.com, obviously, once again. Mm -hmm. uh, there we have over 3,000 participants already, and it's really an active group um, which requires you to fill out a questionnaire. So not everyone is allowed to get in there. So if you are one of the few individuals then feel privileged no but it's an amazing community <laughs> there um then you can always find us over on youtube check out our podcast episode there revive stronger podcast this you can also find over on itunes for audio only and other than that i mean over on instagram if you want to see me ramble and talk about <laughs> unuseful stuff information if you want to actually learn a little bit on the social medias as well so instagram you can always check out revive stronger there as well which is run uh, by my my partner in crime uh, steve mm -hmm. steve hall and my my handle is pascal floor and yeah that's basically it i think Perfect. Yeah. And you guys do the most kick-ass infographics. So, uh, yeah, people <laughs> definitely dig that stuff. But I think infographics are kind of dying right now, right? Are they? Um, I, I, at least I have the feeling, but it could be that I'm wrong. It's good because I haven't done them. So, you, you, <laughs> you see, people, I'm the best strategist here. <laughs> like, yeah, totally. I know which horse to bet on. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was a pleasure uh, talking to you, Abel. And thank you very much for having me on. And um, I hope that the listeners took something away from it. And, I mean, if any of your listeners has some kind of questions in regards to that, specifically to what I've been through, they can always reach out. And uh, yeah, I'll be happy to interact with your community as well. Perfect. Awesome. Thanks, man. It was a pleasure. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please leave a comment and subscribe if you watch this on YouTube. If you listen to this on iTunes, please leave a rating to help this stuff grow. SoundCloud and Podbeam, you can just follow me to be notified on future episodes. And to be a contributing member of this podcast, join the Sustainable Self-Development Facebook group where you can drop ideas about future podcasts. I very often ask my listeners for tips and advice on who to get on next. So if you're interested in getting into discussions like that, be sure to join the Facebook group. And if you don't want to go through the searching process, just click one of those links in the show notes slash video description. It is all there. All right. Thanks for hanging around up until now and see you next time.